right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie Halper. How was your week, Katie Halper? It was good, Matt Taibbi. How was yours? <laughs> it was okay. It was okay. I sort of got canceled Taibbi. again a, a little bit. Oh, because of your white fragility piece? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's okay. I'm, I'm going to set the all-time record, I'm hoping. Well, Matt, is, uh, is it triggering your white fragility? Do you feel like you're going to crumple into a corner? And I do. Yeah. I do. I feel like retreating from the habitus. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> Do you think we could get her on, Robin D'Angelo? Yeah, somebody was saying like, "Hey, you know, if you're if you're going to be so nasty, you should have her on to." Yeah. So, she, uh, Robin D'Angelo, if you want to come on the show, we are very glad to have you. Robin, this is a safe space. It's a safe space. We will treat you with kid gloves. There won't be any difficult questions at all. No. We'll be happy happy to have you on. So, otherwise, the world still sucks, right? Yeah, uh, I think so. First of all, cases are skyrocketing. So we're, you know, death is imminent. Cases um, of COVID, just so people Yes. Know. And then there's a, there's a new new strain of H1N1. You heard about that? That's a swine, a swine thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, we got that to look forward to, too. So all in all, things are good. All right. So what, what happened in the world this week? What do we have for uh, Democrats Suck? So for Democrats Suck, we have a very interesting story. Um, it's kind of, too, and it's a story within a story. But let's set up the first part. Um, Dan, can we show the video of uh, St. Louis Mayor Lida, Lida Krusen. Lida or Lida, I'm not sure, but Lida Krusen. Basically what happens is she, during a Facebook Live, uh, res- responding to questions and decided it would be a good idea to um, read this. Well, actually, let's just play it. She's gonna, she, you'll, cause I, I think it's a good, I think it'll be fun to watch it um, reveal, but you're gonna see she's gonna read some feedback that she got. And, it's, and uh, she presents it like she's being a very responsible, public figure and just sharing the feedback of her constituents. Uh, Rachel has a question there about um, your meeting today with some demonstrators outside City Hall. She wants to know how was that meeting and what did you talk about? Well, thank you for that, Rachel. So uh, there was a a demonstration here in front, sort of on, on Tucker and Market here, and the demonstrators wanted to meet with me. So I went outside City Hall in the circle on the Tucker side of City Hall. The conversation wasn't really a two-way conversation, I'll be honest with you, because there was a, a very loud um, very loud response from the demonstrators. Uh, and so they gave me some, um, some papers about how they thought. Uh, in fact, I'll go pick it up off my desk. Hang on. I like this already. I know, it's great, right? <laughs> they presented some um, uh, papers to me about how they wanted the budget to be spent. Uh, here's one that wants $50 million to go to cure violence, $75 million to go to affordable housing, $60 million to go to health and human services, and have zero go to the police. So that's... Nope. What happened? So, no, no, Matt, what she's doing there the reason we don't hear this is because it's been edited because had you been watching this video in real time you would have heard her making reading the names of these people in full transparency who were making these suggestions and giving their addresses <laughs> so she docks her constituents and i love the way she does it in such a like there's no you know she does it as if she's just sharing and giving feedback and being a good representative of her of her of her constituents but it's hilarious because, first of all, I like the way she's like, 
Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to get, let me get those letters. Let me get them. And it has all the naturalness and or- right. organicness. Just uh, spur of the moment. Spur of the moment. It reminds me of when Hillary Clinton um, said back in 20, 2008 when she was being asked why she didn't drop out in the, of the primary. And she said, well, you know, my husband uh, didn't. They said, you don't believe in that party unity stuff. She goes, no, I mean, because my husband didn't drop out in, um, in, until June. Um, oh, in June, we all remember June. June, of course, is when Bobby Kennedy was killed. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was like, like it just occurred to her. Yeah, it yeah. just occurred to me to, comp- to, to you know, use the uh, assassination of Bobby Kennedy to justify staying in a race uh, yeah. against Obama, who had like unparalleled. That was sweet. That was good acting, actually, on on, on her part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, I mean, in, her- in both of these cases. Oh yeah, right. I think they did a lot of character. What do you do? You think they like took some improv courses? She, she found her center. You yeah, know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that it was, was that was really good. It was I, really I, good, right? Yeah. And so yeah, she I'm goes through, and she keeps. Now the problem is that I think that the people it's been removed for Facebook, and she apologized. Big deal. But uh, I mean, I don't know how you could not apologize for doxing your constituents. But uh, the problem is, I don't know if lip readers could could understand what she's saying. I thought that they were going to do the pixelating in front of her mouth. I mean, they mute it, but I don't know. Uh, they should have put like a Raleigh Fingers mustache. Yeah, exactly. Her, uh, like a, you know. A much uh, bigger uh, one to cover them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But can you, it's like so disgusting. Let's just watch a few more seconds of this. Just watch how passive aggressive she is. Affordable housing, 100 million to health and human services, zero to police. Um, same address. So this is interesting. All these folks are at the same address. Oh, so maybe this is an office. Well, here's somebody. I like the way she goes. That's interesting. Hmm. All these folks. So that's like two passive aggressive terms in one because the that's interesting or that's funny. That one is even more annoying. You're like, oh, it's so funny. It's so funny, Matt, how you always do that. It's so funny, Matt, that you like never remember to do ABC or what you know what I mean? Like, right. it's such an, an, I hate that. Like, oh, no, it's just funny. It's just funny that you, you never uh, remember to call me back. It's just funny. <laughs> It's just funny. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As a person who who is who who has who is prone to seething, I I, I appreciate the seething in this scene. Like she's yeah. she's she's a very good seether. I feel like she's it's below the cert. You can it's it's not that perceptible though. I think it's very perceptible. Don't you think? I mean, she's seething with a capital S. Don't you think? But I think she's like doing. She's trying to seem chill, right? Well, I mean, she's trying to seem like chill in the sense of like she would like to freeze you with her words so that you, right, you break yeah, like yeah. ice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of hilarious, actually. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's like one of the X-Men characters or something like that. She's shoot, shooting freezing rays out of her eyes or something like that. It's excellent. And so she Excellent does that. Stuff. She goes, "It's that's interesting, which is basically the, the equivalent of it's just funny. Like, but um, the other thing she does is folks. Interesting. Folks. These folks, it's like, okay, first of all, I well, hate that word. It's okay. Sexual. It's so hokey. And it's like, you don't, it's like when Bush was like some of these folks talking about Al Qaeda. It's like, why are you using a night that term? So folks is a, is a personal bugbear of mine. I, I, I started to go crazy uh, with that word with Obama in 2008. Because right. um, I used to have this system for, <laughs> I didn't want to be taking notes of all the cliches for each of the candidates. I would just have a like number of systems because I you would memorize each of their stump lines. So when I would do speeches, it would just say things like one, nine, 11, 
14, right? And, and then it would go back and reconstruct what they were. So like for Howard Dean, you know, or Mike Dukakis, I didn't do him, but you know, if I'm, I don't just believe in the American dream, I'm a product of it, right? That might've been number seven, right? So you, you, so, but with Obama, he, he had like so many different folks lines that I, that, that it, it got confusing after a while. Like he, like he just inserted right. it into every single, every single one of his yeah. cliches, which made right. it very dif dif difficult to, to keep them apart. Biden is also a master of the, of, of folks. Oh, really? In fact, uh, yeah, let's see if we can find it. He did it in his, uh, in his announcement last year. His launch speech last year contained 35 uses of the word folks. Uh, and as I noted in a piece last year, this included a rare double folks. And here's the quote, folks, I know some of the really smart folks say that Democrats don't want to hear about unity. So I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for someone to go for a triple folks. I think that would be really funny. What the folk? What the? F yeah, what the folks, folks? I think that we're excluding Bush, and I think we need to inc incorporate his use of the word folks because I actually think he outfolkses uh, Obama. Really? And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. All right. This government does not torture people. We tortured some folks. This government does not torture people. We tortured some folks. So that I just I feel like you maybe neglected. Matt, you neglected actually the best Obama folks reference. Right, we tortured some yeah. folks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great moment in the history of folks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, but then I want to just play this little thing, Dan, if you can play the next one, which is uh, an important, I think, moment in folksism. And to conduct a full scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. To find okay. the folks who committed this so act. This, this was George Bush talking about 9-11. Talk about folks. Talk about folks. <laughs> but, like, isn't that weird? It's kind of cute. It's like, it's, it's, I don't think Bush was trying to humanize them, but it almost comes off like he does. We're, we're going like, to find, yeah, it's, it's folk well, terrorism. Yeah, it's folk terrorism. Yeah, yeah, it's folk terrorism, yeah. I expect him to be like, we're going to find these folks and we're going to try to talk to them um, about the history of imperial violence. And then we're going to try to de-radicalize them and, uh, you know, which will cut down on, on uh, you know, like it's like he's going to it's launch into some Chomsky and. Right. OK, so there's that. And that's a pretty I think that's a pretty good Democrat suck. Right. Very but good. Yeah. Not, no, thank you very much. Not only did that happen, but this led to a, a really interesting story where um, basically there was a protest against this mayor, understandably, because she sucks. Uh, and now that we've exposed her on Democrat suck, I expect there to be a much more organized protest against her. That'll be actually successful. So um, what happened was that these protesters wa were walking to. Um, Oh, right. This led to the whole thing with the guns, right? Yeah. Um, so so this this uh, caused uh, people to march to protest the mayor. And basically they were calling on her to resign, which is very understandable. And uh, when they when they got there, uh, they were greeted. They passed a house on the way. So they were going to St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruzen's house a block uh, and on their way. They passed through this other house owned by these people, a couple named the McCloskeys. And uh, according to Mark McCloskey, the husband, uh, he said that I really thought it was storming the Bastille. We'd be dead and the house would be burned. Um, and if we could just look at some of the uh, some of the footage uh, and see how they responded to the, the protesters. 
a large crowd of very angry, shouting, aggressive people poured through. Tonight, the couple seen in this now viral video is detailing what they say was strictly self-defense. Mark McCloskey and his wife stood on their patio Sunday night, pointing guns at a crowd of protesters. I was terrified that we'd be murdered within seconds, that our house would be burned down, that our pets would be killed. McCloskey says he and his wife called 911 and grabbed their guns as they heard the crowd approaching from afar. Video from another angle shows protesters chanting, while walking into their private gated community, which appears to be open. But McCloskey says that he is required and later shared these photos of the gate destroyed. I stood up and uh, announced loudly, this is private property, please go back, leave. The, as soon as I said the uh, words private property, it, it enraged the crowd. There was um, then a horde of people coming through the broken Anyway, what's interesting about that is I, it's a nice callback to the um, Mark Levin, uh, Charlie Kirk uh, romance, por uh, Good Morning America. Oh, right, yeah. The role mm -hmm. of private property. Remember that? Yeah, I, don't, I, I hate this story. I, I, I don't want to go anywhere near this story because it, it, it's, it's full of, this is a classic story where pic the pictures are, right. are more powerful than, than the, the, the facts. So yeah. I, and I don't know what the facts are yet. Okay, so, so. we can return to it, but I, this is the important part, okay? Yeah. This is to me, well, so this is interesting because we have this story about the mayor of St. Louis who's like passive aggressive, like uh, dart throwing from her eyes, sociopath, doxing her own constituents. That leads to a protest, which leads to this uh, lawyers, these lawyers coming outside of their mansion on their being, you know, standing on the, on the, the deck or the terrace, whatever it's called, of their mansion with guns. But then what's interesting is they've now released a statement, these lawyers. The peaceful protests were not the subject of scorn or disdain by the McCloskeys. To the contrary, they're expecting and supportive of the message of the protesters. Um, and it says, uh, the Black Lives Matters movement is here to stay. It is the right message and it is about time. The McCloskeys want to make sure that no one thinks less of BLM its message and the means it is employing to get its message out because of the actions of a few white individuals who tarnished a peaceful protest. Okay, well, that makes me think they actually are guilty. Right, right, yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, I mean, because the idea that they are, uh, it, it's funny, it's, this, is like, this is so cool, it's like a Pandora's box, because like within that statement, they do the whole, like it's white, it's white violent protesters, they're using all these talking points. I mean, they don't say the Russian outsider, uh, outside agitators, but uh, so can you, what do you mean by that? Just in case our listeners don't get it, Matt, what do you mean when you say that that makes you think they're guilty? Because they wouldn't be doing all this virtual virtue signaling about right. about their, how, how down they are with Brock Lives Matter if they weren't feeling a little bit guilty about having right, jumped, jumped right. to certain conclusions. So. Right, exactly. Or, or I mean, it's, I think it's, I don't know if it's guilty or as much as it is damage control. But I just think it's Could funny they put, out their, they put out that statement through their lawyer. But but Dan, can you show this picture I found of them? So after I read this statement where they expressed their support of Black Lives Matter and how it's a movement that's here to stay, um, I thought it was they were being disingenuous. But then then I found this photo and I'm actually I actually believe that they are real allies. <laughs> so uh, for, I, I kind of had a feeling you were going someplace like that. Uh, yeah, so for, for listeners only of the show, I, I discovered a photo of um, uh, Kathleen Cleaver and Bobby Seals of uh, the Black Panthers. Um, but it, that's historically what we've thought of it. And it turns out it's actually the McCloskey couple. 
Um, right. And he, he's wearing a beret and she, she has an afro and is... It's, uh, it's, it's McCloskey Carmichael. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we all learned a lot. <laughs> we did. We all, we learned something today. We did. Yeah. 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 Excellent. All right. Cool. Um, well, I have something far less uh, interesting for uh, Republican suck. Dan, if we could open the text to businesswoman upsets five-term congressman oh, in yeah. Colorado primary... So uh, here's what we need to know. A woman named Lauren Boebert uh, has won the Republican primary in, uh, upsetting five-term Colorado Congressman Scott Tipton, who was endorsed by Donald Trump. The interesting thing about this story, I think the, the significance of it, is that uh, Boebert is probably, she might be the first sort of openly QAnon endorsing politician who's going to make it all the way to a general election. I'm wow. not sure wow. about that. I should, if, if listeners uh, and, and viewers uh, have information to the contrary, please let me know. Uh, but here, this is uh, Bobert earlier this year uh, when uh, uh, asked about QAnon, and we'll get into what QAnon is later. Everything that I've heard of Q, I hope that this is real because it only means that America is getting stronger and better and people are returning <laughs> to conservative values. Uh, she calls it Q. That's cute. Well, I, I mean, anybody who reads the breadcrumbs of Q uh, would refer to Q that way. Got it. Are okay. you not Are you not familiar mm -hmm. with I'm Q? I'm not Q very fluent in Q, QAnon. All right. So uh, QAnon, if you're not familiar with the theology of it, uh, is basically this notion that there is a secret investigator named Q, and I haven't followed this recently, so I can't remember exactly what the latest permutation of the theory is, but um, I think basically the idea is that this secret investigator has been assigned by Donald Trump to gather the evidence that will uncover the great uh, conspiracy to end, to end all conspiracies and there's going to be a prosecution. It's basically Russiagate, but like way, way more elaborate okay. uh, because Q, Q is basically the, the Robert Mueller figure of the right. Right. Except that he's, he, he's sort of more fictional than, than the legend of Robert Mueller was. And, uh, and if Dan, if we could show a, uh, a chart, uh, that was compiled of the various intertwining theories of QAnon. Uh, you can see here all the different connections that the, that uh, Q is, has has uncovered. And as you can see, oh ba God. basically everything is connected to everything else. You've got big pharma is connected to depopulation, which is connected to the military industrial complex, connected to the protocols of, El of the elders of Zion, That's Zoroastrianism. I feel seen. Yeah. The, F the FBI, the, the Freemasonry. The CIA is at the center. I like that. The CIA, the Lincoln assassination. FEMA camps, the Russian Federation mass surveillance, 9/11, uh, the uh, blacks, the blacks. Night sat Black Knight satellite, Draco reptilians. It's it's just so it all kind of fits together, right? It's like a unified field theory of. To be fair, this this chart I think was compiled by somebody else, uh, right? It, yeah, it could be worth pointing out just how chaotic it looks for the people yeah. who aren't seeing right. it. It is this really good representation of what I could imagine the mind. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Of, of a QAnon follower being, right. it's it's these things that come up in bold that sort of stick out, but it's just pure chaos. It's just endless yeah. thought cycles that yeah. can sort of fold onto each other. Yeah. It reminds me of. Um, do you guys watch? Do you watch the show um, Homeland ever? 
Yes. It's like Carrie's board, bulletin board. Right. The thing that jumped to mind for me was uh, the, the song Alice's Restaurant by Arlo What's Guthrie that? with the 28 by 7 color glossy photos with the circles and arrows, right? Like, yeah. Which, which uh, you know, just sort of depicts the, the, the grand scheme of things. Anyway, great stuff. If you if you read Q, Q basically communicates to the world through what they call like breadcrumbs where he, he sends out little little hints about, you know, the, the ongoing investigation or whatever the hell is going on. And so... Um, and, you know, you, you have to have kind of a next level craziness to really embrace this thing. And, and people do. So now we have someone who's nearer to the U.S. Congress. Right. Who, um, you know, seems to like this thing. Who so, will speak for the QAnon followers. Right, right. This woman. Now, to be completely fair, I want to I think it's important to point out that there are there are charts that rival this one for incoherence on the Russia front. Uh, but the, it, this, this one is like, a f- you know, six or seven factors more right. crazy. Than- and also these are like, mar- I mean, how, how far from this center is this versus, Ru- in other words, Russiagate stuff has total current, like mainstream uh, currency. Right. Uh, yes. cachet, right it's totally yeah. part we see it on msnbc nbc cbs abc right uh so the ratio of like of insanity to mainstream is much higher yeah i think when you actually when you do adjust for the equation yeah i don't know how mathematically you would do that but it comes out to be pretty close but this yeah this is this is pretty 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 nuts so anyway good great news right republicans let's let's hope there are, there are more of these and, folks and coming. this is the person Tr- trump did not endorse right and the, the hilarious part about that and first of all it's politically significant for a couple of reasons that because trump has now had a, a series of these uh situations where the people he's endorsed have lost primaries which is which is a huge thing because there, that wouldn't have been even remotely cl- close to possible even a couple of years ago. But the the um, Bobert actually beat this uh, this Tipton character because she argued that he was insufficiently supportive of Trump, even though the Tipton is actually sort of is, is, is in Trump's campaign. I think he's the Colorado uh, something chairman. I forget what he. Uh, Guess but. he was uh, just the Tipton. Of, uh, <laughs> oh, 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 I needed. We need a rim shot for that one. I know. Yeah, he even yeah, has yeah. the drum set. If yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. may not know this, but Matt has a drum set behind him. Uh, so anyway, that was Republicans. Uh, Republicans suck. What do we have for? Isn't that weird this week? So for isn't that weird? I mean, it was hard for me to to settle on one thing. And you know, what do they say? Good things come in threes. Is that I believe? Uh-huh. Yeah. So apparently, weird things come in threes also. So we have a kind of. Uh, holy trinity of penis-related stories. Excellent. Um, yeah. That's so weird because I chose a trinity of the of isn't that terrible stories? But anyway, oh, wow. go ahead. Well, actually, I kind of felt like maybe these should be terrible. I don't want to kind of dismiss um, the seriousness of this and the terror of this. But let's start with India, where a man put a cell phone charger up his penis. Uh, it got stuck in his bladder and had to be removed by surgeons. Uh, so. <laughs> And we actually have the photo of it. We have both an x-ray and the photo of it removed. <laughs> I don't seem to see, I don't think this is, oh, he put the, I get it. I was gonna say it's not the full charger. It's the cord. It's not the, yeah, it's the to cord. be fair, it was just the cord, just the tip of the charger. <laughs> Let's see the picture, come further on. Further than the tip. Okay, yeah, I have, it's in there. So there's the <laughs> x-ray and you see it. It's just like right there in the bladder. 
Um, and it looks almost like a pasta noodle. Like it almost looks like a, a fettuccine. It's fresh pasta. Fresh, very fresh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you just see it's really quite horrible. And uh, if you scroll down, um, uh, Dan, we'll actually see it removed. So what happened was um, an Indian man who went to hospital with abdominal pain had inserted a mobile phone charger cable into his penis. He visited a hospital in northeastern India, claiming he had ingested some earphones. But when the cord didn't appear, despite the patient being prescribed laxatives, doctors resorted to surgery. The doctor said he came to us after five days, and despite passing stool several times, the cable did not come out. We then conducted an endoscopy, but still couldn't find anything. As the patient complained of severe pain, we decided to perform surgery and found that there was nothing in his intestine. Uh, it was at that point that an x-ray revealed the man to have a two-foot-long charging cable in his bladder inserted in his urethra, uh, the right. tube that leads from the penis to the bladder. Then I made incision there and took out the cord, which was actually a charging cable of over two feet long. If he had been honest, then it would have saved us the trouble and we could have treated him sooner. So Let that I mean, be a lesson to you. I know. Then the doctor said, I've read that people used to get sexual gratification by inserting instruments through the penis this is one such case and the psychiatrist can help him beyond this point tells you something about his knowledge of anatomy first of all i, I mean i guess he was lying right well yes but the, the, the fact that he thought that that oh i see he thought he could trick them oh i see right because right. if you ingest it it's going to go into your wind urethra the penis it's yeah. not going to end up in your bladder what you have? So you have you have two more penis. Yeah, things? that's penis story number one. Now let's go into number two. Sex addict claims hot female gamers caused him to injure his penis. Um, <laughs> I hate when that happens. I love people. A gamer uh, is very angry that uh, he was caught that he was forced basically to harm his penis. What happened was uh, a sex addict, well, I got to read the lead to the, the opening sentence for this. Excessive gaming is known to damage one's joystick. Uh. A, Cal <laughs> a California sex addict is suing the video streaming platform Twitch for $25 million after claiming that the site's overabundance of scantily clad gamers have caused him to injure his penis, according to the lawsuit. In the legal document filed at a Santa Clara County court on June 15th, San Francisco's Eric Estavillo claimed that the Amazon subsidiary had, quote, subjected him to overly suggestive and sexual content from various female streamers, end quote. To cure the twitch in his pants, the self-proclaimed sex addict reportedly resorted to using a fleshlight to masturbate while watching the salacious gamers, which resulted in him chafing his penis every day. Flashlight? Fleshlight. Oh, 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 okay. Right. The plaintiff's randy pastime was extremely painful and caused him redness and mild infection, forced him to use neosporin on his tip to prevent mm -hmm. necrosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, always, yeah. You gotta, always. Worry, worry, gotta worry about the necrosis on the tip there. Wait, it gets even worse. <laughs> he alleges in the transcript he even once ejaculated on his PC monitor, which caused his gaming system to short circuit. <laughs> <laughs> And it resulted in a fire that temporarily caused his apartment to black out. Um, Twitch said that they were uh, uh, not responsible. I'm reading from the New York Post, by the way, not surprisingly. Despite the ridiculous, they spell that R-I hyphen dick hyphen the rest of the word, 
uh, allegations. Estevillo claims he can't just find another hobby. The plaintiff's various ailments, uh, which include depression, agoraphobia, Crohn's disease, and OCD, along with sex addiction, have relegated him to surfing the internet in his apartment all day. And Twitch exacerbated his sex addiction because apparently it's twisted programming and netcode made it nearly impossible for the plaintiff to use Twitch without being exposed to such sexually suggestive content. Uh, look, I, I think we just got to agree that uh, this is an A for creativity in terms yeah. of the lawsuit. Oh, my God. Wait a second. I can't believe. Wait, hold on, Matt. SWU is reportedly following 786 female gamers and zero male ones. Um, many of whom the na he names in the lawsuit per the doc. So here's the here's what's so important. Ready? As reparations, Estevio wants a permanent ban on all listed streamers and the 25 million in punitive damage, which he says he'll split with other Twitch Turbo subscribers. Any leftover proceeds will be donated to both COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter charities and funds worth <laughs> choosing. <laughs> They could get together with that couple in St. Louis. I was Louis, thinking that. I was right? thinking that. Yeah. They should all sit around and injure injure their genitalia for the sake of for the sake of Black Lives Matter and COVID. Right. This is, this is like incel type thing, right? This should is... we? But it, yeah, incel who wants to donate leftovers to Black Lives Matter and COVID. I love it. I this love it. It's like a combination of everything. Incel. Yeah, woke incel. It's. Uh, that's like a new species, right? Really you've, is, yeah. you've, you've, you've broken new scientific ground. You discovered yeah. a new animal. You're, you're really going to regret that uh, analogy, that metaphor. You know why? Why? Because my final story. Is it a fish hook thing? No, my final penis related story is, uh, and of course, reading again at the New York Post, leech swims up man's penis, drinks pint of blood before docks pull it out. <laughs> Okay, now this story, so we've gone from India to California, and now we're going to Cambodia. Doctors in Cambodia, okay, here's a worm that'll make you squirm. Doctors in Cambodia <laughs> removed a leech that, in wince-worthy fashion, had entered an elderly man's penis while he was swimming and drank a full pint of blood. The unnamed patient first knew something was awry after experiencing severe pain while trying to use the bathroom. He wound up at a hospital uh, in Phnom Penh where Phnom a tiny... Yeah. How do you say it? Sorry. Phnom Penh, I think. Phnom Penh. In Phnom Penh where a teeny camera was inserted... Sorry, where a tiny camera was inserted into his penis, which revealed the culprit to be a leech. The poor soul told doctors... Uh, Dan, can we show this, by the way? I just want, because I think Matt needs to, unfortunately. I, I need to see this. Major trigger warning. My hunger. Yeah. So. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, so there you see the actual leech. Um, and Wait, are those are those spawn? Oh, my God. What is that, though? So we see a big leech, and then, uh, I don't know. Is that spawn, or is that, like, the leech broken, or is that blood? I mean, it's so disgusting. Also, a pint is like your regular ben and Jer ben regular ice cream unit, right? Yes, I love that you you you, you make an ice cream metaphor here. I mean, because, right yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, as we all know, chubby hubby. Now we can make a new flavor called lychee, lychee, lychee. Yeah, pe peachy lychee or something yeah, like that, lychee, right? Yeah, peachy yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or le right. lychee nuts. Lychee nuts, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, for, perfect, perfect. Perfect, Katie, right? high, wow. high five. High five, right? Very, very good. high five, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, and then there's another, if you scroll down, because the first one is like black and white, you don't really see it, but this one, we actually see it. 
Oh my God, it's so gross. If you close that and then click on the next one, uh, you'll see the doctor. <laughs> so in this, in this photo, that's ridiculous. In, They're back this, from the moon landing or something like yeah, that, right? Yeah, in that photo. Um, the guy is giving the thumbs up. Yeah, yeah, they're posing. So these are. this is a medical team. They're a bunch of doctors, and they're all giving the thumbs up, and they have, it says, doctors pose with the bladder invading blood sucker. Um, and then, unfortunately, removal was complicated by the fact that the interloper had ballooned up to a much larger size after sucking a pint of the victim's blood, hence his pain while urinating. Not, this is really disgusting. I'm, I really am disgusted. Not, I'm sorry, everyone. Not only that, but it had already injured parts of the man's organs with its teeth. To safely extract, it's really gross, to safely extract the vial visitor, doctors were forced to use a teeny probe with electric nodes and cutting tools at the end to kill the leech before yanking it back out the way it came in. Fortunately, the man was released from the hospital after spending the night there. Just the night? Jesus. And is said to be faring okay after the skin-crawling ordeal. This isn't the first time a leech has infiltrated an unlikely orifice. In 2018, a video surfaced of a blood-sucking worm being pulled out of a man's nose. The subtext of the story is just don't, don't, don't go swimming in Cambodia, right? Yeah, so, I think no, yeah. no, I think no. And, uh, the other thing I love is oh the God. photo of all those... The dudes in the, in the uh, who who did the procedure, yeah, with the thumbs you know, up. Well, because they're all like kind of smiling, like they have they have this kind of this this devilish grin that they're sort of suppressing on their faces, which is uh, it's, every man who hears this news story is 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 going to involuntarily uh, have the same thoughts. And that, that, I don't know, there's some sort of brotherhood of, of, of dudes in that picture that's kind of funny. Wow, right. well, that, well that really, that was that was weird. Could, could have been terrible too. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I, yeah, they all survived, I guess, so. Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Um, I have multiple stories as well, but I'm just gonna institute a new policy here where- you did this to me. I'm already looking at the headline. I can't. Oh no! Don't it. look at the headlines. All right, all right, all right. Don't look at the headlines. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. Okay, well I'm not looking. All right, pick all pick right. pick a pick a letter between A and C. B. B. All right. This is from the Guardian. Uh, horror scene in Canada after 38 dead puppies found on plane. Canada has launched an investigation after some 500 puppies, 38 of them dead, were found on board a Ukraine inter international airlines plane at the Toronto airport, officials said Saturday. The surviving French bulldogs, a popular breed in Canada, were suffering from symptoms including dehydration, weakness, and vomiting when they were found on the flight from Ukraine that landed at Toronto Pearson Airport on 13 June, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency said in a statement. The agency, quote, will determine next steps once the investigation is complete, it said. Uh, so dead puppies, that's what this story is. Uh, and what the hell? Why? Because they packed a whole bunch of puppies into a plane, didn't take care of them. Uh, and you know, when they got to, to Toronto, they, you know, they, they had lost a whole bunch of them. Uh, and here, here's, here's the insincere corporate apology, which is a staple of this sort of, um, story, uh, UIA, the Ukrainian airline, uh, offered its quote, condolences for the tragic loss of animal life on our flight, uh, end quote, and said on Facebook that it was working with local authorities. I don't know how much you want to believe that. Ukrainian Airlines did, didn't know that 500 puppies were being loaded into one of its planes, but um, all right, well, dead, dead puppies in Canada. That that's, is that's so sad. Yeah, it is. There it was is. potentially some organized crime component. There was, yes. That doesn't surprise me at all. 
Yeah, uh, puppies go for uh, this. This breed goes for three or four thousand dollars a uh, a puppy. So that's quite a lot of money. That is so heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, wow. I'm sure that there's there's about a thousand of those stories happen every day, but this is one that just happened to hit the news. Uh, so anyway, that's terrible, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although I think your penis stories were all. I know. I mean, I almost feel like we could have re reversed them, and that could have been weird. It could have been. Could have been, but that's a typical thing with this feature of ours. But we've, we we're comfortable with that. Uh, all right, should we talk news of the week? I well, I don't know if it, if it was great, but it, uh, it it was it was certainly circulated quite a bit. I, so, have you read White Fragility? I I'm afraid that if I read it, it'll cost, you know it'll be too. Uh, I won't be able to take it. You'll retreat from your yeah. I'll and I'll I'll recoil from it, and I'll just become that much more attached to my privilege. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll leave the habitat of uh, habitus. Habitus, right? The habitus yeah. blancus, right? Uh, <laughs> in which I was already currently reside. You'll, re yeah. you'll retreat from the disquiet in your habitus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and and from this uh, abandon the stress inducing situation. That's one yeah. of the wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. The the cis. <laughs> S I S. Yeah. So for folks who who aren't familiar folks. with, uh, oh my God, I did it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Is there a penalty box? Yeah, we need a we have box one? and a folks box. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's it's, it's not quite a flagrant two, but right, it's not it's, yeah, it's a single. Yeah, a second flagrant is a time is, is an ejection for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So no so no more use of that word or else I'm going to I'm going to be out of the game. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe even suspended next week. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, well that's important. So I'm 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 on notice. Your folk uh, band. Yeah, that's Your right. Folk band like Peter, Paul, and Mary. Wow. Wait, wait, why are they banned? Oh, fo folk, um, band. folk band. Oh, I, I see. That was in real time, people. That was I real. will say, too, if, if the Overton window comes up, that's an instant ejection. Yeah. <laughs> and a fine. And a fine, yeah. And you donate that to um, not Black Lives Matter or COVID, but to f the Fleshlight Fund. For the Fleshlight Fund. So White Fragility uh, is the number one book, uh, at least it was last week was the number one selling book in the country. Uh, this corporate consultant, uh, Robin D'Angelo has written this book that is just taking America by storm because uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, incident, white Americans want to know what they can do to repair uh, and end racism. And so this book is flying off the shelves. Now there's massive irony already in the fact that the book that surges to the top of the bestseller list uh, because white people want to deal with their with racism is a book by another by another white person. Right. Uh, but and I wonder how much money she's making off of it, and how much of that goes to causes. I, I have no idea. Uh, apparently, the her her consultant uh, fees. Now, to to understand the background here, yeah, Robin D'Angelo works as a corporate consultant for companies, typically that have had some kind of toxicity complaint. Right. So. They bring in a team of diversity experts who come in and conduct these trainings uh, and they facilitate anti-racism training and they have people come in and they have to do these, these seminars and she charges them massive amounts of money uh, to companies. Uh, and it's it's as great. Do you know her rate? Does anyone know her rates? This is a tweet from Thomas Chatterton Williams who was, who was commenting about this. We should have on the show. Yeah, we should. Uh, he's like, everybody's got to work. And there are plenty of writers who get tens of thousands of dollars for a 45 minute talk. And yet 
there really is a preposterous irony at play when a white woman makes $6,000 per hour by insisting to other whites that they are all privileged, racist and privileged. So, uh, yeah, Robin D'Angelo, she, she makes lots and lots of money basically explaining to people, you know, the sort of causes of racism. And the, and the fundamental theory about her book is, is that everybody is basically defined by their racial category. It's inescapable. Racism is everywhere. It's in every, it's in every transaction. It's in every conversation. Um, it can't be denied. If you deny it, that's actually more proof of your white fragility. Uh, so it's, it's sort of like the ordeal by water. You know, if you throw the witch in the water, if it sinks, it's a witch. If it floats, it's a witch. So if you deny it, you're really racist. And if you own that you're, if you cop to being racist, you're. Yeah. Then you have to commit to a lifelong program. Uh, and then she, she says, she says in, in, in the book that there, uh, there, there can be no positive self-image, uh, for whiteness. Uh, the, the best that you can aspire to is to try to aspire to be less white. Right. Well, um, then she must be a real fan of Rachel Dolezal because that's what she did, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So that that's confusing. She has some ideas about what what actually is whiteness and yeah. what and she she speaks in there that uh, about the nature of what how you define it. It's not a biological thing. And but the th- the amazing thing about uh, Robin D'Angelo is that fundamentally a lot of her beliefs are are very similar to what you would find uh, on the complete opposite theoretically end of the spectrum so uh, in that spirit i want to play a little game okay and this is going to be called richard spencer or robin d'angelo who said it richard spencer or robin d'angelo i like that yeah okay yeah uh so we're going to have some quotes here and i want and i want you to try to guess who said what of course, for people who don't know, oh, Richard yeah. Spencer is a sort of notorious, uh, probably, would you say he's America's leading notorious open racist? Yeah, white supremacist. White supremacist, yeah. identitarian. All right, racist isn't a descriptive word, it's a pejorative word. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. Racist is just a slur word. I think race is real, and I think race is important. And those two principles do not mean I want to harm someone or hate someone. Oh, Spencer. Okay, that's Spencer. The final challenge we need to address is our definition of racist. In the post-civil rights era, we've been taught that racists are mean people who intentionally dislike others because of their race. Racists are immoral. Therefore, I'm saying that if my readers are racist, uh, that my readers are racist, or even worse, that all white people are racist, I am saying something deeply offensive. I am questioning my readers' very moral character. Well, that gives it away because the readers, right? Because he hasn't written that much stuff. So Robin... That is Robin. But if you'll take note, that's essentially the same idea. Uh, They they both believe that one of the problems uh, in society is that uh, we have we have defined racist as being a negative word where where we should just be accepting that it exists and and embrace what its meaning is. Right. But she's Um, saying like it's an appropriate word. Get over it. Where he's saying it's not appropriate. You're not racist. Like she's like everyone's a racist, and he's no, like no one's racist. No, he's he's saying that racist is an o- okay thing to be. But he's saying it's okay. But he's also saying he's complaining that it's a slur. I see. Right, right, right. Is he embracing it? Yes, I guess he is. All right. He's saying that the, we we should be proud to be racist. Right, and she's saying you should be ashamed. You're you're all racist, and you should be ashamed. Okay, all white right. people are racist. Okay. 
there's an additional quote in, uh, from her uh, on, on that score. Still, I don't feel guilty about racism. I would say Spencer. Nope, that's D'Angelo. Whoa, wait, say it again. Still, I don't feel guilty about racism. And she's saying that or is she quoting another white person? She's saying that. Really? Yes. She needs uh, to go back and read White Fragility then. No, no, she's saying that we, we should, her point is that we should just accept that we all are racists and, and just deal with it. Right, I see. Okay, unlike heavy yeah. feelings such as guilt, the continuous work of, of identifying my internalized superiority uh, and how it may be manifesting itself is incredibly liberating. D'Angelo? That is D'Angelo, okay. yeah. Uh, white identity largely rests on a foundation of, super, of uh, parentheses, superficial racial tolerance and acceptance. We whites who position ourselves as liberal often opt to protect what we perceive as our moral reputations. D'Angelo. That is D'Angelo. Because he wouldn't say he's liberal, yeah. Yeah, but otherwise, that if the word liberal wasn't in there, that would be yeah, a tough say one. It, can you say it again without the liberal? White identity uh, largely rests on a foundation of superficial racial tolerance and acceptance. We whites uh, often opt to protect what we perceive as our moral reputations. Yeah, see, if you had just taken that thing out, I could have struggled. Right. People who claim not to be prejudiced are demonstrating a profound lack of self-awareness. Ironically, they're also they are also demonstrating the power of socialization. We have all been taught in schools, through movies, and from family members, teachers, and clergy that it is important not to be prejudiced. Unfortunately, the prevailing belief that prejudice is bad causes us to, to deny its unavoidable reality. That's kind of close, and I almost said Spencer, but I'm going to say D'Angelo. It is D'Angelo, yeah. Uh, so you'll notice that the, the, give, the giveaways in all this are essentially mostly lingual. The ideas are really, really similar. Uh, and what they're both saying in, in different ways is that race is, is the defining characteristic of society, that we have to stop running from that, uh, that we have to embrace that, that we have to abandon uh, the hypocritical and uh, unrealistic goal of diversity and common humanity. Uh, and we have to just sort of learn to deal with each, each other as uh, racially motivated people. Uh, and the thing that's weird about this is that if you, <laughs> if you read D'Angelo's book, she, there are so many moments in there that are like giveaways about how it seems that she has some serious issues with, with race and that maybe she is projecting onto the rest of us. Like here, here's a quote from the book that I thought was fascinating. Uh, there is a curious satisfaction in the punishment of black people, the smiling faces of the white crowd picnicking at, lynch at lynchings in the past and the satisfied approval of white people observing mass incarceration and execution in the present. White righteousness when inflicting pain on African-Americans is evident in the glee the white collective derives from blackface and depictions of blacks as apes and gorillas. Who, does she, who is she hanging around with, right? Yeah. Here's another one. We see white solidarity at the dinner table, at parties, and at work settings. Many of us can relate to the big family dinner at which Uncle Bob says something racially offensive. Everyone cringes, but no one challenges him because no one wants to ruin the dinner. Or the party where someone tells a racist joke, but we keep silent because we don't want to be accused of being too politically correct and, and be told to lighten up. I mean, I think it's kind of weird that she kind of uses those examples as if they're comparable. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like those are pretty different things. Right. Not disrupting uh, 
quote unquote disrupting uh, racism versus being gleeful about blackface and violence. Yeah, or and cheering on depictions of, of blacks as apes and gorillas. Like who, I, I, yeah. I struggle to remember an, an instance of any of these things really in, in my personal experience, but uh, right. she, she seems to think that, that, that it's happening uh, quite a lot and uh, it's 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 a very very strange book and what's 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 really odd about it is that it's being it's being recommended basically across the board by people who think it's it's a sort of uncontroversial work uh, that is instructing white people to confront um, you know their, their own their own racist history the structural inequities of of the country which would all be very positive things but it comes gift wrapped in this package that is really bizarre and, and, and quite radical uh, where es essentially you there are only three categories of people there's people of color there's allies and then there's people who are white supremacists essentially right. and if you didn't if you if you deny the, the that logic you are contributing to white supremacy and did you read the whole book by the way i did yes I mean, my biggest problem with this, and we'll probably discuss this with our guests, I'm assuming, um, is that it actually doesn't really do anything to challenge any structural racism. The entire theater for this is on the personal level. Exactly. It's, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that this, this person is a corporate consultant. Right. It, it identifies... It, it identifies a problem that can be handled, and, and the way she des describes it, it can be handled as an HR matter. Yeah, exactly, right, and, all and interpersonal. All interpersonal, but the, the, the thing that really troubles me about this is that it, it, it over-prescribes the, in order to, to avoid the actual structural critique, it goes, it goes a million miles in this other direction and, and creates this possibility for where whereby corporations can endlessly root out, you know, signs of right. the the never completely suppressed white supremacy. Because one of the one of the theories of this book is that it cannot be eradicated. It can. It, 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 there's no possible future where where we can all sort of just get along. So you need constant vigilance. For, vigilance. But her her in her prescription, you basically need. Lots and lots of people like Robin D'Angelo to, to constantly hunt out right. evidence of this kind of behavior. Also, and isn't that convenient for $6,000 an hour or whatever right. it is? That's, isn't, that, isn't that convenient? Isn't that terrible? And I mentioned this in the piece that uh, even if all we're getting, we're going to get uh, in terms of you know, racial reform or, or you know, uh, anti-racist activism is a whole bunch of these folks hired by corporations, there will be some positive si folks. side effects. Oh no, I'm in the yeah. penalty box. Uh, but, you know, they, they will correct uh, inequities in hiring, like the boardrooms will become more representative and all that, but they probably, right? I would think. Yeah, yeah, they will. But the again, the 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 problem that as I see it is is that she's training people to uh, view themselves as being defined by their race and it, uh, and to be hyper conscious of it in, in all their interactions with other people. And I, I think that's, it's exactly the opposite. And she denigrates uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in the book, 
and talks about how the, the, the moment of where he said, you know, I, I have a dream where we, you know, we will someday be judged not by the color of my skin, but by the content of our character, right? Or, or yeah. children. That fame. Yeah. Does she denigrate him or does she denigrate the way people, because I haven't read it, but does she denigrate his speech or does she denigrate the way people res- use it or respond to it? She doesn't denigrate him per se, but she talks about it in a way that is, is highly dismissive. And she takes the, she, she takes this in completely ungenerous uh, interpretation of how of why that speech um, was embraced by white people, right? In other words, like w- the, the only reason that uh, that people embraced that speech is because it gave it gave us an out, right? right. Now, now all we had to do is pretend that racism didn't exist, right. and you know, pr- pretend to get along with one another. And whereas, you know, it, it, again, I just think that's it's kind of a radical thing to abandon this idea that maybe there's a future goal or that we could work toward. Right. There's a difference between saying we live in a colorblind society or we live in a post-racial society and, and, and aspiring towards that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's explicitly yeah. rejecting the aspirational. It's so uh, funny because like she, I would love for her to read other Martin Luther King texts and try to grapple, grapple with them. Um, because what's absent from all of this stuff is, is any like discussion of, kind of uh, where these things hit up against other things like class or like international issues. Like if you care about racism, what about imperialism? But of course, this is all the very personal individual. Um, can we read some of your stuff? I can read it if you don't feel comfortable. Sure. Some of it's yeah. really funny. All right. So um, you write D'Angelo's writings. And this is a piece you wrote at Substack mm-hmm. called um, on white fragility, a few thoughts on America's smash hit number one guide to egghead racialism. And you write, D'Angelo instructs us, there's nothing that com- nothing to be done here except strive to be less white, to deny this theory or to have the effrontery to sneak away from the tedium of D'Angelo's lecturing, what she describes as leaving the stress-inducing situation, is to affirm her conception of white supremacy. This intellectual equivalent of ordeal by water, if you float, you're a witch, is orthodoxy across much of academia. D'Angelo's writing style is pure pain. The lexicon favored by intersectional theorists of this type is built around the same principles as Orwell's Newspeak. It banishes the ambiguity, nuance, and feeling and structures itself around st- uh, sterile word pairs like racist and anti-racist, platform and deplatform, center and silence that reduce all thinking to a series of binary choices. Ironically, Donald Trump does something similar only with words like amazing and sad that are simultaneously more childish and livelier. Big important point. Um, Writers like D'Angelo like to make ugly verbs out of ugly nouns and ugly nouns out of ugly verbs. There are countless permutations on centering and privileging alone. In a world where only a few ideas are considered important, redundancy is encouraged, e.g., quote, to be less white is to break with white silence and, the, and white solidarity, to stop privileging the comfort of white people. Or Ruth Frankenberg, a premier white scholar in the field of whiteness, describes whiteness as multidimensional. She, this is, I like this part. D'Angelo writes like a person who was put in time out as a child for speaking clearly. When there is disequilibrium in the habitus, when social cues are unfamiliar and or when they challenge our capital, we use strategies to regain our balance, she says. People taken out of their comfort zones find find ways to deal, according to Google Translate. Ideas that go through the English D'Angelo translator usually end up significantly altered. A lot of her 
of her language is like that. It sort of sounds like meaningless gibberish where there's supposed to be this, some kind of subtext underneath, but there's, there's no subtext. She just literally, literally means what she says. And right. it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, people are, are coming around to criticizing it a little bit, but yeah. uh, I think if you actually read it, you'd, you'd, you'd find it deeply, deeply disturbing. We should probably do a, a reading, like a, a sentence or a paragraph every week. Yeah, well, to help our facilitate yeah, our anti-racist yeah, exactly, yeah, training. Yeah. All right, well, we, we have a great interview coming up. So excited to have on Adolf Reed, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, at UPenn. He's a political scientist, and he's also was a big Bernie person, so I want to give him a shout out there. He uh, is the founder of the site nonsite.org, which is a great, uh, really interesting intellectual leftist uh, publication. He's also involved in the Debs Jones Douglas Institute and South Carolina um, Medicare for All. In, in short, in short a, a, a Renaissance figure, lots of different interests and intellect. And, uh, and let's, let's see what he has to say. Just wanted to explain to our useful idiots listeners that during this interview, Professor Adolph Reed's virtual Zoom background was a photo of North Carolina Tar Heels championship banners. Of course, I was immediately aware of the significance of that. Totally know who Tar Heels are and uh, North Carolina Tar Heels. Okay, so enjoy. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you doing, Professor? Love this background. Oh, very nice. Oh, wow. That is great. I, all I have to say is suck it, Duke. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole interview right there. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't even need to move on from there. <laughs> who's, who's your most hated Duke basketball player? From the year? Oh, my God. How much time do you have? We got a lot of time. Well, you can't miss with Christian Leitner. Christian Leitner is a great one. Bobby Hurley, who always Bobby struck Hurley. me as mm-hmm. like the kind of guy who was so – who who was operating so much on the edge of his talent and his uh, emotional capacity. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that, that, like every Thanksgiving, I expected to hear he went home and killed his fucking family. <laughs> <I'm> Jersey too. <laughs> oh, what was the guy? Paulus. Greg, Greg Paulus, I think it's uh, the guy, oh, right? Yeah, Greg. I've got a great photo uh, of D- Danny Green dunking over him. And I mean... <laughs> Literally, right? Green's crotch was about six inches over Paulus's head when he threw down. <laughs> All right, we should get started, I guess. Yeah, okay. Right? Cool. We don't... <laughs> well, I just want to say again, face to face, that uh, that the Robin DiAngelo thing made made my week, man. That was great. Yeah. I'm glad. And I mentioned yeah. to my son that you made the Hitler reference because this is what we've been saying, saying about the way that these people talk about race, right? I mean... Mm. We've seen where this train goes, and you might think there's some other spur, but eventually this motherfucker is going to wind up in Auschwitz, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, can we expand on that a little bit? Because this, it's, I, I, you know, I, I'm relatively new to reading this kind of literature, so I, I, I don't. Oh, I don't read it at all. So I mean, mm, you, okay. But no, but but I've read enough snippets of that stuff, and mm-hmm. in fact, my son just had to sit through a training on this <gasps> stuff at his university yesterday so it was like zoom and a lot of it and like he only learned the borderland trope like when he was in graduate school so it was around the time that the borderland thing was like leaving but the um, professional race relations consultants use it now too Uh, so it's like all this stuff but uh, no i mean 
the conversation we've been having about this is pretty straightforward that racism is the belief that races exist. Punto. Right. Fin. Right. Nada right. más. Right. I mean, and so if you believe, if you insist that ra race is real, which apparently more and more of the people who are coming at the likes of us as class reductionists in, insist, they're racist. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, but in the literal sense, right? Because they're stressing it, race over 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 other factors. Or? Well, not just because they're stressing it, but mm -hmm. that they um, in, insist that we treat it as um, as as an essentialist category right. that's rooted either in biology or culture dressed up as biology or mm -hmm. biology dressed up as culture, because they really come out to be the same same right. same same thing. So it's not. And what people typically you know think or want to think is that. <clears throat> racism is the belief that some races are better than than others and some should be persecuted uh, by by those that are better but what they have a lot of trouble wrapping their minds around is and I've taught taught this you know for decades that no racism is the belief that there is some subspecific naturally occurring right. population within Homo sapiens that exists between the level of the species and the local breeding population, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and those are called races. And those and and I've often said to people, every time you hear the word race, think unicorn because it's the same thing, right? <laughs> right. But it's right. also and and the same people who who have that kind of implicitly in their understanding, they talk about race as a social construction. Right. But they don't actually view it that way. Yeah, no, it's like doing like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, race is a social construction. Right. right. And genuflecting, yeah. Right, People yeah, just exactly. Listen, listening and not viewing, yeah. Aren't you impressed by what a good, um, for secular Jew, how, how fluent I am in that <laughs> theology thing? Totally. No, no, I absolutely am. Yeah, they have yeah. me with the genuflect. That's great. <laughs> One of the things we wanted to get into with that, though, is 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 this mode of thinking is it utilitarian is it is, is is it just convenient for for instance i mean my, part of my thinking about this is that corporate america would much rather engage with the subject in this way than deal deal with much broader and more difficult questions and right. so they they they're hiring these people and and encouraging this kind of research in universities and yeah. um or is it something else i i i i'm genuinely curious i think the the most uh crystallizing things that I've I've heard you say or read you say is that identity politics are class politics. Yeah. Um, which I think also relates to Matt's question right. about what the function right. of this is. So Well yeah, no, and that's I was, yeah, that's kind of where I was going. That um well one of the things uh, the things my dad often said, in fact he said it a lot, is that from one perspective, ideology is the mechanism that harmonizes the principles that you want to think you hold and what advances your material interests. Right. So from that perspective, it's like hard to sort out. I mean, we have a natural tendency to want to do it because you want to know who's an asshole and who's not. But but it's hard to sort out what's genuine and what's not, because my dad would often also follow up by saying that sincerity is vastly overrated as a virtue. He said, you know, Himmler was sincere, like he sincerely yeah. thought that the world would be better with no Jews and gypsies and Slavs in it. So what kind of points do we give him for that, for the sincerity of his belief, right? 
Um, so it's hard to say. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the way that ideology works. And that's kind of, and I think that one of the challenges that faces, um, to whatever extent, it still makes any sense whatsoever to use a word like left. But one of the challenges that faces us as a left is to get beyond the tendency to read history as being made up of good people and bad people. And boy, this is the hell of a moment to suggest that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to sort of think about the relation between the past and the present from a perspective of trying to help us understand how we got to this screwed up situation that we're in now. And what's the Upton Sinclair quip? Uh, it's um, uh, very difficult to get a man to believe something when his, when his livelihood depends on him not, not believing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of things that people believe because they believe them, right? And that's like folk, folk wisdom, right? And, and it's, and you can tell it's coming you know, when people say things like, well, I know that the evidence shows this, but I'm just convinced that there's this other thing. And you say, well, yeah, you're convinced that there's this other thing because you had an a priori sense that it was there, right? But it's a reification. It's in your head. It's not some shit that's, in, sorry, something that's in the world, right? Um, but now, see, see, at this point, and... And, and I was actually just trying to write, write a little bit about this before the call, that, um, that we've got now like a half century of emergence of an industry that's anchored to race relations engineering, right? So people believe it, it makes sense for them to believe it. And, and as to your point about corporations uh, preferring to deal with it, um, I think your position just got what 1.7 billion votes right over the last couple of weeks, right? From Uber and fucking right. and Popeye's chicken, for God's sake. I mean, I was waiting for Colt 45 malt liquor, like a Saint Ives, to pony up a couple hundred million. Uh, and I mean, that's that's a part of the problem, right? Because because there is a political economy of identity group relations, right? Uh, and it's you know centered largely in the cultural sector it's like all up and down the professional managerial strata uh, and at this point and by this point too I mean um, I've, I've written this about um, you know the current black political class that so 50 years after the Voting Rights Act 50 years plus after the Voting Rights Act you would expect that black political class after all these years of their holding the same jobs going to the same schools multi-generationally kids going to the same schools Kids playing on the same traveling soccer teams, uh, having sleepovers, going to one another's weddings, marrying one another, uh, consuming the same stuff, going to the same restaurants, that they're like a single class, right? And yeah, there's like pigmentation differences in it, sort of depending on where, where you are. But what people want to see as a racial perspective on the world is is much more likely to be a class perspective, right? Uh, but the work that, that, that an issue like mass incarceration does or police violence does, and I'm not you know, suggesting for a second that um, a Yale graduate investment banker who is black doesn't have a greater likelihood of being pushed face down on the platform at Metro North than his white, white, white classmate by a transit cop. But that, that same person doesn't have anywhere near the same chance of being jacked up in that way as somebody that lived in a zip code that George, George Floyd live, lived in. 
But the work that taking issues or, or like stressing issues like mass incarceration or of the police violence as as concerns that in principle at least affect all people of color or all all all, all black people uh, you know the work that that focus does is basically the same uh, that the focus or the insistence on analogizing inequalities or injustices in in the present to slavery and to Jim Crow which is that it denies the existence of political differentiation, of economic differentiation, of class di differentiation among black people, and insists on a simplistic one color frame, race basically, right? I mean, one lens through, through which to see everything. So in essence, it's ultimately a pretty crude uh, class program. And the kind of frightening thing, one frightening thing about the current moment, and I've been thinking about this for a while, and didn't want to say it out loud, loud, but I can count on Thomas Byrne Edsall to say things I wouldn't want to say out loud, out, out loud uh, but in the wrong way. But from the standpoint of you know the capitalist class, right, or and or the ruling class, I've been thinking that what appeals to them about this identitarian moment is that it it can offer a way to rescue something that looks like um, a democratic neoliberalism, that, that is a small d, in a context in which it may be as the combination of the Sanders insurgencies and the Trump, Trump insurgency showed, that uh, the neoliberal political economy it may be exhausting its uh, capacities for delivering enough stuff to enough people to be able to keep functioning as a democracy. And I mean, we see what's happened like in other states that have gotten to that point, Brazil, Bolivia, I mean, mm. Hungary, India, uh, Poland, um, et, et cetera. I mean, I would toss Boris Johnson in there too, just for the heck of it. So what I was thinking was, that, okay, well then if we can, if they can help consolidate, um, you know, the idea that the only serious um, and morally defensible norm for social justice is anti-disparitarianism, right? Or pursuit of equality, a real equality of opportunity in market capitalism, then they can keep the thing going for, for a while. But the dirty thought underneath that is that, you know, as Edsall and Michael Lind and Joel Kotkin and people like that are always gonna look for, that this attention that's being lavished right, on the colors, as it were, fuels um, counter-mobilization among the authoritarian right. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, that could be a problem that, that the real ruling class figures they can handle. But on the other hand, like, it might be that that works out pretty well for them too, right? Uh, and this is a way that I've been toying with the notion that anti-racism now may come to perform the... Um, a version of the same kind of function that racism performed uh, for the first half or two thirds of the 20th century, depending on where you were in the U.S. Well, that was a long one. response. No, but I mean, oh, but, yeah, but, yeah. but 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 in, in terms of the same function, though, but be, by dividing and preventing a broader uh, focus on other structural yeah. issues, right? I mean, because I, I was I was really struck by your diagnosis of the reaction to Trump's election, because I had a lot of the same thoughts and wasn't able to really articulate them all that well. But I remember there was this moment 
uh, when the the journalists who were following Trump, it was like it all happened. It felt felt like almost instantaneously. There was a moment where it was suddenly decided that the only explanation for Trump was uh, this uh, white identity politics that all of his voters, uh, inclu including as you as you pointed out, the ones who voted for Barack Obama, uh, that they were all driven by this. It was hopeless, uh, and that that the uh, and this pessimism uh, sort of led to. Um, a, a, a lack of inquisitiveness about what had actually happened in 2016. And I, I just wonder if you could talk about a little bit about that, because you're one of the few people I've seen who, who's really uh, dug into this issue. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because it ought to be a lot more, it should right. be a lot more obvious. I mean, well, I mean, there's a lot going on there, right? I mean, one of the things is that, you know, our class, broadly speaking, are the people who live the most segregated lives in America, mm -hmm. right? Uh, their workplaces are the most segregated, their neighborhoods are the most segregated. Um, and, and they need a way to feel better than trashy white people out there, right? right. As they perceive it, right? So they displace all of the stuff that they don't like to think about themselves onto those people. So that's part of it. So, I mean, they're kind of set, right? I mean, the default for the people who read the New York Times uh, is kind of set on, on the conviction that these trashy fat people out there are like stupid and yeah. bigoted and so forth and so on. And deserve their own misery. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Well, and see, that's the beauty of human capital, isn't it? Right? Because mm, yeah. if they had just paid attention in school, right? Yeah. right and gone to MIT, right? Uh, they wouldn't be dependent on that job that Bill Clinton shipped to China. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Le learn to code. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. Yeah. And uh, you know, by the way, um, you know, a lot of people have forgotten the earlier incarnation of Robert Reich in the Clinton administration, haven't they? Because he was the guy who was telling us to go do that, right? Like mm -hmm. we were all gonna be symbolic analysts where all the shitty jobs are gonna go to Mexico. <clears throat> right, so, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see him get up on his stool and explain that one now. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, no, I mean, that's right. And that is the work that, uh, you know, that that human capital discourse does. But but it does it like on both sides of the racial curtain, too. Right. Because the underclass are people who either. Well, I mean, the difference between liberals and conservatives, right, about broke black people and brown people and white people for that matter, is that the liberals say, well, they're broke through reasons that don't have to do with their own in, intrinsic, or no, not they're broke, excuse me. Yes, they're broke, but they're fucked up for reasons that don't have to do with their own intrinsic failings, but they're victims. And in principle, maybe kind of weak because they couldn't stand up to it or didn't have the skills or whatever, whatever. Where the conservatives say, no, they're just terrible. But, but, but they both agree on a terrible part, right? And that they're a problem to be administered, right? Um, they can't be trusted to take care of themselves. They don't really deserve a, a decent standard of living, right? For, for whatever reason. I was saying to somebody, and this may have been a thing I did with Bhaskar, but because we got into talking about the island um, and the political history. And I mentioned, yeah, like I spent, you know, once it became clear what 
Reagan was, then I figured, okay, then I need to spend most of my time trying to figure out how to talk to liberals and make right. common ground with them. I, but then finally, when the underclass thing hit, by the end of the 80s, and like all of the liberals went with it, and they started calling this uh, you know, a left politics, right? Uh, and the left politics was publicly beating up on the most vulnerable um, people in the society, people who never have access to a public microphone. I said, okay, well, fuck it, I can't do this anymore, right? But that's what it's been since then. So we've been living now, for however you want to count it, in a sort of bipart under a bipartisan, a bipartisan neoliberal consensus that was formed and consolidated somewhere between Reagan, the elder Bush, and Clinton. And it might be that the Obama presidency was the last hurrah for that version of, of democratic small d again, neoliberalism. Uh, but like now, I mean, God knows what, what, what the other side of the pandemic's going to be. But I'm starting to feel now that, that, that the ruling class um, or the people that count right, the opinion leaders, as political scientists would call them, have decided to weigh in and to put their thumbs, thumbs on the scales in ways that are um, characteristically left in form and right in essence, right? So... Like what? I'm sorry to interrupt, but... Well, like the race relations stuff, mm -hmm. right? Now, I'm not naive about the functions of, neo, of neoliberal police. Like, you know, the first time I saw the Battle of Algiers in a movie theater, I thought, shit, I've been in this movie, right? I mean, <laughs> and and when my son got swept up by a black cop with a jerry curl, uh, when he was 15 in, in New Haven, Connecticut, on the way home uh, from high school, once I subsided blowing my top when I found out about it a little bit, I said to him, well, I guess you just had your black bar mitzvah, right? So it, it's, it's like, tough, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm not naive about that, but I also understand that most black people, <clears throat> most of the time, and I mean most working class black people, don't wake up first thing in the morning thinking about the cops. They're thinking about stuff like jobs, housing, healthcare, um, schools, I mean, how are they gonna pay for it? How are they gonna get it? You know, whatever, whatever. But, but the issues like, you know, abstract moral issue like police reform as an abstraction, defunding the police at, as an abstraction, breaking police unions slash public sector unions as a concrete proposal mm. works out very nicely for them, right? Uh, and it also changes the topic. And I, I got to admit, like I was no fan of Occupy or like the rest of that stuff, but I, I wasn't even prepared for how quickly uh, you know, the street action went from defunding the the police department to pulling down a Lincoln statue. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I mean, so this is just the kind of bread and circuses stuff that that appeals to the other side. And you can feel the long hand of the Ford Foundation and the leadership development and community development corporations and like shaping the institutional structure of uh, a political economy of race relations administration that sort of moves in a slightly di different direction, farther away from anything that smells like class, re uh, class re redistribution. Well, I want to ask about that because the people who are the, the sort of opinion leaders, one of the things they're really great at is creating names for things that villainize 
ideas, yeah. right? And so when when the 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 response to what you were talking about, which was let's focus on sort of systemic class issues, income inequality, that, that sort right. of stuff, they they came up with this name, uh, class reductionism, right? right? And uh, you've been you've been very critical of that. Could you could you talk about how, how that that term came to being and what what it means and what 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 your thoughts are about it? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean. I suspect that its historical roots go back to the debates in in the fragmentation of SDS in the late 1960s, where people were throwing charges around at one another. Um, but the recent iteration, um, I think, is well. Okay, no, a couple things happened. Right, first is the class versus race debate. Wh which one is it? And then when. And then we respond by saying, well, that's a simplistic debate because uh, of, of, of a variety of reasons we can talk about later if you want, I don't know. But, but like then this kind of funny position started to pop up around DSA and like other um, younger leftist groups or whatever uh, calls, uh, well, it's been satirized by its opponents as bo both andism, right? That it's like, race race and class and say yeah okay well that's great fine so what does that mean exactly but then the next move is all right so katie i'm sure is 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 pro probably implicated like at the heart of this but so like sanders gets um castigated as a cl class reductionist because he talks about the working class and one of the rhetorical moves here is that working class gets re redefined as white so you can't be black and being a working class, even though statistically speaking, not to be a prude about this, uh, you're more likely to be in a working class if you're black than if you're white, right? I mean, just just yeah. just given who does what what for a living and like the distribution of jobs, but you can't be. So you can either be black or working class. You can't be both. And to me, like that's first of all a testament of the extent to which the black upper class and and a professional managerial strata have won in defining what's publicly understood to be the domain of black black political aspiration hmm. right hmm. uh joy joy ann reed is kind of a pet of mine like in this regard right uh in fact just just before i hit the zoom link right i i checked her annual salary and her net worth uh because i just happened to see her on um on a Daily Show in 2017, ragging on Bernie and explaining about how black people don't really care about stuff like Medicare for all or or, or free college or universally re redistributive programs, but they want stuff like, the, they want to have the racial conversation and to have the reckoning about America's past. And I thought, gee, I wonder what black people she's been talking to. Mm. And then I double checked and saw she's a Harvard graduate. She makes she made then like a million and a half dollars a year and had a net worth of four million. So I'm pretty sure that the black circles that she runs in don't include a lot of people who would say, Oh wow, I can go to Penn State for free. Right? <laughs> uh, so so that's one 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 thing that's going on. So and you know uh, she just got promoted, by the way. I don't know if you know this news. She's going to take over Chris Matthews' spot at seven p.m. weekdays. Wow, seriously? So she's prime time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh huh. So ching ching. Yeah. Well, 
Oh no, she famous. You were talking. It's funny you talked about free college and Joanne Reed, and of course, one of the famous, one of my favorite tweets of hers was when she compared Bernie Sanders to your uh, college friend who roommate who doesn't pay rent and stays on your couch. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah, which is just so funny because I'm so loath to play to like play the anti-Semitic card or anti-Semite card, right, right. but like. The double standard and the sensitivity that's demanded from people in one direction and is not at all even considered in the other one. I'm just like, are you kidding? Um, yeah, her content. And she used to call him the clarion, the moral voice of the Democratic Party. I don't know what happened, though. That, uh, yeah. Opportunity. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny because on the Bernie thing, I mean, yeah, every time I heard somebody say shrill. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or or she called him she referred to his physicality oh that's had, right yeah, yeah and had a body language expert on right yeah uh, you know what i saw that and that's one of the most ridiculous things i've seen in my life right i mean that was like a mel brooks kid yeah yeah <laughs> totally yeah wow yeah that's crazy but so anyway as my friend walter ben michaels has said the best way you can um or the best evidence uh that somebody has a class position is that they deny it they have one. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Uh, and that's how this thing works, right? So you dress what's a class position up in racial garb. And isn't that what nationalism always was, right? I mean, to begin with, right? Um, so then you get to denounce you know, anybody who has a different class position as a who, or who's advocating for a different class perspective as a cl class reductionist, when, when what gets constituted as the racial agenda is pretty clearly a class agenda, right? Mm. Um, what is the racial wealth gap, for God's sake, right? I mean, that's, what, I mean, that's not something that's going to dribble down as far as me, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, what, um, you rectify the racial wealth gap by um, creating black investment banking houses, right? That's what the story is. But it's all within commitment to uh, market criteria. Uh, or tying a notion, and, and any notion, even just the imagination of a just world has to be tied to, to presumptions of a market society. I, I saw you, um, it was really a, such a great talk. It was, I guess, on the, the for the Bellows and you and Walter Ben. Um, oh, yeah. Michael yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah. yeah, it was great. And you said you guys were talking about like the, the limits of disparity discourse and also mm -hmm. of disproportionate, the disproportionate right. framing. Could yeah. you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, yeah, like the thing. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about um, the disparitarian model or, or anti-disparitarian model of social justice, right? Is that you can fulfill it if 1% of the population controls 90% of the resources, just so long as 12% of that 1% is black and 14% is Latino, it's, it's, and it's half women and- LGBTQ and-, and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's, in principle, right, like in an ethics course, that's that's um, an ideal of social justice that's as good as any other, but it's not the one you know, I'm gonna fight for, right? right? Uh, and it is one that presumes capitalist market forces, right? And I mean, just, just to amplify on that for, for, for a second, my friend 
Preston Smith II, who's a political scientist, uh, did a great book called Racial Democracy in the Black Metropolis. That's a study of post-war housing policy in Chicago. Uh, formulated a number of years ago the notion that, that there have been two contending principles or norms at, that, that, that drove black American political activity in, in the middle decades of the 20th century, from the 30s through, through the 60s. One he defines as the principle of racial democracy, which is basically that, right? I mean, it's, it's the idea that, that, that the society will be racially just, as one preacher back in the Black Power era put it, if black people are 12% of the ditch diggers and 12% of the corporate boards, right? right. And 12% of everything in between. The other, which emerged in black politics out of the Great Migration and the CIO and A. Philip Randolph and, and the emergence of a bl uh, black mass politics, is a social democratic ideal. And through the 30s and 40s and and 50s and into the 60s during a period when there's a kind of a black popular front of, I mean leftism uh, was dominant the two kind of rode together and converged and diverged sometimes ran parallel but right, uh, sometimes they were in conflict and I think um, a simple way to to understand what's happened over the last 55 years after the Voting Rights Act is that um, the racial democratic impulse, which was the one class's impulse, crushed the other one, right? Or sort of ate the twin in the womb or whatever, right? But, uh, <laughs> so now, like even uh, you know, the vestiges, right, or the symbols of mass action politics that were, you know, like the March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs and then freedom later on, right, have been reinvented, right? as consistent, well, I mean, they've been reduced to the dramaturgy, right? My friend Mark Dudzik calls it the pageantry of protest. So people channel like the images, right, of protest. And I remember uh, I got to Seattle for the WTO stuff and, and I got up the next morning, my, my hotel was in the curfew zone and I had to walk through down, downtown to get to a meeting and there'd been one skirmish already, right, in that morning, one or maybe two. And as I walked past some of the kids, I could, it's almost like I could see the video of, of Grant Park outside the Democratic Convention in 1968 playing in their eyes, right? So you want to relive, I think about the, that, that um, you know, the opening paragraphs in Marx's 18th Brew Mayor about that, that, that you want to relive the great moments of the past, right? But what you do is you append them to uh, presentist concerns. So, like, I'm in New Orleans. I was here uh, three years ago during the monument fight. Like, my mother had just died here. So I was here, here, here for all of it. And I was struck then that, that the people who were leading the fight to take down the monuments then, and I hated those monuments. I hated them. All, all my life, I had fantasies of dynamiting when I was a kid. So I was happy to see him gone. But the people who were leading that fight were also neck deep in the charter school industry. Mm. And part of the outcome, right, was that uh, the current biracial, multiracial, interracial governing class is able to represent having gotten rid of an obsolete symbology of oppression 
uh, as a backhanded way to legitimize the current dynamic forms of oppression, right, exploitation. Uh, and that's, that, so anyway, again, I feel like you asked me what time it is and I told you how to make a watch. No, 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 that's yeah. great. I mean, that, that, that comes back actually to a question that popped up in my mind as you were talking before about how, how quickly the the oh, protests yeah. went from defund the police to <laughs> yanking Lincoln Lincoln down and all that. But right. I mean, it, it, uh, I was really struck by the speed with which um, you know suddenly it was the entire range of American iconography, and it felt like um, the same kind of corporate the uh, thought leaders and pundits that. I, I seem like I remember six months ago we're denouncing Bernie Sanders as uh, on patriotic grounds right. because right. he was a Russian agent or whatever it was. Right. Suddenly, right. suddenly you had this total absence of a patriotic uh, reaction yeah. to this, and I, I, I was very confused by that. But is is that the kind of the same thing? Is are, are we looking at like gesture politics as a replacement for something else or as a stand-in? Uh, like what's yeah, going I think on so. There? I mean, well, I tell you, like this time around. I I mean, you know, like I've been part of a group that's that's worked in South Carolina off and on for more twenty decades and spent a lot of time in Charleston. And the the one that caught me the most this time that said the, that that spoke the loudest to me was when the Charleston County Council voted without any substantive debate, from what I can see, to take down the big fucking John 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 Calhoun statue mm -hmm. in the heart of downtown. I thought, okay. Then ruling class is behind this one, right? <laughs> but yeah, I think ultimately, I mean, and a good friend of mine and I go back and forth, forth about this, and he's right too, right? I mean, like it's right to take them down, right? It's right that they're gone. It makes it makes everyday life better, uh, right? I mean, it it's like trying to imagine, you know, I don't know, a statue of Franco, you know what I mean, or or one to Batista in Cuba, right? I mean. Yeah. Uh, or or as I mentioned, like in a piece that I wrote about about the fight here, having a statue in Berlin to Goering because of his exploits as a World War One aviator. Right. I mean, nobody gave a shit about what he did in World War One. It's what he did afterward. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that said, like, I think we need to have perspective on this stuff. Right. I mean, it, it, it's and you know, I don't know if this is like a function of the extent to which American you know, political culture is like wrapped up with the advertising industry and and its logic, but there's a tendency to proclaim the historic significance of stuff in advance almost. You know what I mean? And what that does is is it like removes a necessary critical distance between what we're seeing happen uh, you know, before us and trying to make sense of it. Right. Like it's not like another one I, I'm like this is the historic election of Barack Obama. Well, yeah, I mean, it's worthy of note that he was the first publicly acknowledged black person to be elected president. I'm still holding out for Warren Harding, but but he could only have gotten elected because the changes had happened already. Right. Because of uh, because the secular changes had occurred within American politics and within the electorate. Right. So in that sense, his, his election ratified, right, more than augured, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's the same kind of thing, thing with this other stuff. I mean, we've, I mean, also, 
that there's just so so much of the children of the corn you know aspect of this kind of politics too, right? I mean, Grant, right? I mean, right. Lincoln Cervantes was my favorite, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, that's right. They got him too, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And what did he do exactly? I, I don't know. You, you, you invented uh, funny stories, I guess. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, but I don't think he had a presence in the New World, did he? Oh, no, he he was a slave himself, if I remember correctly. But oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just so maybe that's what it was. It's just such an interesting moment. Uh, yeah. And it's it's so interesting to watch the reaction of the kind of sort of national pundit class to all this because you, you know in a different context the reaction would be completely different and oh, yeah, I, I just find it very puzzling. So yeah, no, me too. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I've been kind of surprised by it. I've been I've been surprised at how many. Well, I mean, seeing Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer kneeling. Like it's the beginning of an HBCU. I know, yeah. Rat step show, yeah. right? Uh, I kind of wanted to see him. What um, I'm gonna jump up and make the moves, right? But, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean the same people who were not six months ago, right? I mean the South Carolina primary was February 29th. Were denouncing Sanders, right, for standing for anything, right? And um, AB Klobuchar. Buttigieg, whose sole raison d'etre as candidates was to say, no, right? You can't have any aspirations, right? Mm -hmm. We have to win this election. You can't aspire to anything. And then all of a sudden, like, they're all, you know, made a 180-degree turn and mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, and oh, I'm so racist and take down the police and whatever. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it either. I also want to give you, I just want to... Um make sure uh, listeners know speaking of uh, and viewers know speaking of like you know the ability to look at history and and uh, you said in 1996 I believe about Obama uh, you described him in the village voice uh, right. you said in Chicago for instance we've gotten a foretaste of the new breed of foundation hatched black communitarian voices one of them a smooth Harvard lawyer with impeccable do-good credentials and vacuous to repressive neoliberal politics has won a state senate seat on a base mainly in the liberal foundation and developmental worlds, worlds, his fundamentally bootstrap line was softened by a patina of the rhetoric of authentic community, talking about meetings in kitchens, small-scale solutions to social problems, and the predictable elevation of process over program, the point where identity politics converges with old-fashioned middle-class reform in favoring form over substance. I suspect that his ilk is the wave of the future in U.S. black politics, as in Haiti and wherever else the IMF has sway. So far, the black Jeez. activist response hasn't been up to the challenge. We have to do better. Well, that is impressive. Yeah, that's a right? that's a that's a call and a half right there. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, the pat on the back is it came out in January, so I wrote it in December, but but uh, of uh, 1995. But, but oh, 1995. Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah oh, well, it was it was, yeah, it was published yeah, right. in 96, written in 95. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. But the real point though is is that it underscores something else I say all the time that it's better, often if not most of the time, to be in the right place at the right time and pay attention than to be smart, <laughs> right? Because I lived in that district. I worked closely with, with his predecessor in, in the seat, and I was involved in the negotiations uh, where she had made a foolish promise to step aside for him. Uh, and the debates uh, you know, within the Hyde Park left and 
foundation left liberal world. So I watched it all. So, I mean, um, I wasn't pressing. I was just in the birthing room at the outset of this clown's career, right? So, but yeah, I mean, and I think that anybody, uh, I mean, there's a group of us, right? About a half a dozen of us who were um, in, involved in that. And I think anybody who was in that group would have written the same, mm. same, same couple paragraphs because he was that transparent, right? right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's him. But, but I'll take it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, especially because, you know, like I always say too, that, uh, that uh, the political scientists don't work work well at predicting stuff that's going to happen. We do better at predicting what's, what, what's already it's already happened. Happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the last question for me uh, mm-hmm. is just about this coming election yeah. season and what's what's at stake there. I mean, the, the extreme irony for me in all this is that for the last four years, uh, you know, what you've been talking about, the kind of neoliberal politics has been sort of universally panned. It's gotten like it, it's single-handedly birthed movements on both the left and the right, and it's uh, it's had this extraordinary sort of negative power to to in- inspire people in all these different directions. And yet, it it looks like it's a pretty good chance that it's going to end up being back in the White House. Right. I just wonder what your what your feeling is about how this is going to work going forward. And I mean, yeah. we don't have to predict who's going to win the election, yeah. but is there an irony in all that? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, uh, less than a month ago, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, I would have said, yeah, I'm not even sure there's going to be an election, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Trump, this this may be wishful thinking, but I think Trump has worked so hard over time at discrediting him himself that, that he wouldn't be able to stop an election. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that he could win it. And he's starting to look more and more like Andy Griffith in the last scenes of A Face in the Crowd. <laughs> uh, uh, that that may be wishful thinking. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, that's a thing. And see, I mean, like but like in 08, right? Like I said, you know, once Obama got, got the nomination, I said, look, if it's almost certainly the case that in the short term, we, we'd be better off. And by we, I mean progressives or I mean leftists right would be better off with Obama in in the White House than with McCain in the White House but you think that we have an obligation to think for both the long term and mm. the short term not to say that that would alter your behavior right in the short term I mean not to say that that it's a matter of trying to determine whether it's worth it to vote for Biden or to keep Trump in the White House, you know, to sharpen the contradictions yeah. like that wing and SDS did. But I think it's worth, if if we're going to have anything that that's like a left that that tries to, that's trying to build the capacity to fight for a better world, right? To fight for a society that's qualitatively better than than the one that we're living in now. We need to start thinking and talking more strategically among ourselves about stuff stuff like this and not being tied to, to the election cycle, whatever. I mean, I think we're kind of screwed either way, frankly, right? If if Trump wins or or you know, stays in office, he might come and kill us. I'm just hoping that those kids who post post all their wild stuff on Instagram or tweeted all the time will go in the first wave so that some of the rest of us will have time to grab a toothbrush and head to Canada, right? But but if Biden wins, I don't think we're going to get anything from him. I mean, I, I know people think that 
that well, you know, we can push him maybe closer to Medicare for all. I mean, you know, where I vote in Pennsylvania, right, we, we have three Congress people in, in, in the Philadelphia area that we were trying partly through, through, um, through the Labor for Bernie committee to try to move closer to the Jayapal bill. Once they all in, endorsed Biden, then from my perspective, I mean, that's over. Right. Because Biden ran on opposing Medicare for all. And while it's true, I've been joking for uh, the last few weeks, trying trying to remember when was the last time I heard Joe saying that Americans love their employer provided health health insurance so much. But I don't see how we can back up on that. And I mean, Democrats with with any political aspirations, right, aren't going to bolt bolt from the ticket. Right. So I don't know. I do think it's going to make. Um, a difference in the short term. Like I'm not totally joking when I say that I think Trump Trump will kill us, right? I mean, he would like to. And from that perspective, I think the most we can hope for from a Democratic administration is some time, right? Right. I mean, buying 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 some time. Uh, a, a Supreme Court appointment or two that's not terrible. Um, some better appointments on the National Labor Relations Board, right? Uh, some teeth in OSHA, something like that, right? But the problem is, you know, we didn't um, elect our way into this situation and we're not going to elect our way out of it. And we have to finally act like a left that understands organizing as being something different from event planning, right? Like the big lesson from the primaries is that we don't have the popular constituency out there that we need for our politics. And that means that the number one task has to be trying to go out and create that constituency. Uh, and, and, and that's going to be the job no matter who's sitting in the White House. On that note, um, I have two related questions. One is what is your, what do you see your role as in organizing? Like what is oh, your role yeah. in organizing? Um, and also in terms of organizing, I mean, referring back to the discourse of disparity and, and disproportionate, disproportionality, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. It's right. interesting because I realized that I, I often use the disproportionate argument as like a gateway drug for people mm -hmm. yeah. who don't already get those connections um because i do think that like you guys were saying it's so we're i'm not going to fight for um a more diverse exploited class like that's not the goal but i do think that probably from an organizing perspective like we do just like we have to explain the class stuff to the white working class right mm -hmm. like there are people i assume for whom unless these those connections are made or unless they're not dismissed um there won't be kind of like an audience for that or receptiveness to it right um so how do we do both of those things and like what is your role versus the role of i don't know a labor organizer or a community organizer mm -hmm. yeah you know, two really easy questions to wrap up with <laughs> well yeah well i mean they aren't yeah well they aren't as abstruse as you might think i mean one is my my main role as i see it and like this is stuff that i've been doing more of because we're on lockdown and and I can't get around. My main role is like working on the ground in South Carolina with uh, with our Medicare for All I mean, South Carolina campaign because um, we've um, you know, we've got an organizing model that we came together around when we did the Labor Party back in the '90s and won a ballot line for South Carolina um, Party, in fact, in the early 2000s. 
And we've been organizing around that. And uh, between the beginning of December and the primary at the end of February, you know, we actually got signatures on pledge cards from more than 18,000 South Carolinians, mainly black, um, saying that they would prefer not, not to vote for any candidates who didn't support uh, New Medicare for all. Now, obviously, that's not the way the primary played out, but that just speaks to more to a problem with, with 50 years or more of electoral politics and just um, further you know, underscored that the work for us is, is to dig deeper to build a base. Um, the president of the South Carolina State, State Fed, who comes out of the Longstrom, is a good friend. I'm his political advisor. And you know, we're, we're trying to take the campaign uh, you know, through the trade union movement. I take the point about the gateway drug, uh, but I tell you, it's not as necessary as one might think. I mean, every now and then in talking to rank and file trade union members, but you know, to, to ordinary working people, uh, I mean, they don't look, look for the black issues or for the issues that have been sacralized as the black issues, right? You talk to people about the stuff that they're concerned about. Uh, and, and we also found, by the way, uh, that uh, you know, part of the organizing 101 manual uh, from the Alinsky-influenced world is that you need to have people give testimony and to, and to tell their stories. No, nobody gave a shit about that. And it's partly because when you're talking to people who are living with the problem, they don't need the horror story from somebody else, right? Um, mm. Right. I mean, they've 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 lived the testimony in their own lives. And so the takeaway for me about that is that those are the people that we want to talk to. And those are the people that we need to talk to. And, and every now and then, one of them is going to raise a question that suggests the use of the gateway drug. And there's a white gateway drug, too. It's called death panels and whatever, right. that kind of stuff. Uh, oh, I mean, this is like a good illustration. I had a um, I gave a talk at a steelworkers local in Georgetown, South, South Carolina. And uh, there, there are these two white, white rank and filers. One of them is just a dunderhead, right? He's, he's an old guy who, who, who had two ideas that had gotten into his head and the sutures closed around them. One was bring back the, uh, the manufacturing jobs, and the other was get, 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 rid of the, get rid of the immigrants. But the other guy was, was more complex, and he said to me, you know, like, I like... Sanders's economic program, right? And he said, but the, the thing I don't understand is why the Democrats let themselves get caught, caught up in all the moral issues, like as he referred to them. And I assume he meant stuff like same-sex marriage and feminism and abortion, whatever. So we talked around it or talked about it. And you know, I didn't know him before, but I'm sure that somebody who had standing with him because I at least you know stopped him for a couple seconds. Well, when I asked him, well, so which is more, you know, one way to think about this is which is more important to you, that you have you know um, access to health care that's guaranteed and of high quality and, and a good wage, or that no two same-sex people could ever marry, right? And, and that stopped him for a minute. I think somebody that he had a real 
relationship with could work on him and especially like if you analogize it to the union i said because i said to him too look at there's probably somebody in a shift you can't stand his guts and you can't wait to clock out so you don't have to see him again until the next time you clock in but i bet you that with that person on union matters you were able to find find a way to work together right and so that's the kind of solidarity that we need to try to build with people and and look some some percentage of people who are committed to you know the moral issues are going to be committed to it and we can't do anything about it and we won't win that but there are enough people and we had a pretty significant experience of this kind of thing on our own in the founding of the labor party that some some people are going to be willing to swallow uh their personal preferences right uh for pursuit of a collective goal and that's the culture that we want to build and that's the kind of movement that we want to build and that's the exact opposite of this disposition to treat the movement like as a threat right like you got to show that mm-hmm. you accept all the principles and know all the right 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 words for me the gratifying thing is that often enough uh, it's not a weekly or a monthly occurrence but like often enough i get an email from some random person at my pen account who will thank me uh, for either having helped them form in, into coherent ideas sensations that they had in their head but couldn't put together or had had emboldened them to say out out loud yeah. things things that they had 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 suspected but thought it, thought that it wasn't kosher to say and that's how that that's another way you build a network right so i try to stay in touch with people like that and put them in touch with one another and you know it's all kind of um, a part of the organizing project but the only thing we can do is try to move the ball down the road a bit yeah. excellent well professor so, thank you so much fourth reference and yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then a sports reference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, uh, Dr. Reed, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Really oh, no, thanks it. for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. It was a blast. Take care. Right. That was great. It was. I didn't know he was such a sports fan. That's hilarious. I know, yeah. I wanted to spend the entire time talking about Duke Carolina games, but by the way, since we have you on camera, we got to ask you, what's your, what's your take on the Cam Newton situation? Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Good old Cam Newton. <laughs> Cam Newton is a very good football player. Right, right. And you didn't just find that out. I've known this in my bones for a while. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cam Newton, I think I did know he was a football player. Cam Newton's a football player. And the big news, of course, is that he just replaced Tom Brady as the... <laughs> You're such a cheater. <laughs> Such a cheater. <laughs> you can keep the other stuff in and, uh, and embarrass me. Okay, all right. Matt really wants to humiliate me as if anyone thinks I'm really good sports. Okay, person. So so Cam Newton, of course, of course, as everyone knows, the great football player has just replaced has just replaced Tom Brady as the coach of the football team. The football team. Known right. as, give me a hint, refresh my memory. The Cleveland Unicorns. Are you serious? Yeah. That's funny because Adolf Reed mentioned the unicorns. Right. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cle- Wait, there's actually a team called Unicorns? The Cleveland Unicorns, yeah. In the NFL. That's really cool. Like, isn't that very, I feel like it's very. They have great like, helmets. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like 
unicorns are very feminized for better or for worse and i feel like that it's kind of a it's it's an it's a very aggressive uniform and a unicorn unicorn. in the helmet yeah okay oh so it's it's more i see yeah it's like a ram kind of a kind of of, except it's it's yeah i mean it has one thing right yeah exactly but it kind of runs down the top of the helmet yeah and it's I not see. like a cutesy. That's what I was thinking. A cutesy rainbowy. I thought it was very like. No. You know, no. like the like. It's the, got spikes all over it. Oh and my everything. god! Yeah, it's so really basically intense. a monster. It's basically Godzilla. It should right, be it's Godzilla. Go, it's it's God. It's a menacing. Yeah. yeah the Cleveland kind of a, Cleveland Godzilla. Cleveland unicorns. Yeah. Cleveland. Godzillas. Yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. Cleveland right, Godzillas. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. look, Cleveland. The Cleveland unicorns. They they're known for being really. Um, they've sharpened over the years they've sharpened their technique well they're known for their their powerful ground ground assault yeah Yeah, as opposed to the aerial bombardments that right um, yeah the new york giants are known for right yes exactly uh yeah (laughs) yeah no that makes that makes perfect sense i think i think you're gonna get high high marks for for that one yeah so all right well so adolf reed uh big big tar heel fan big north carolina fan but also that was a that was a really cool talk uh yeah. touched on a lot of topics that were very uh, apropos to the moment and uh, i learned a lot and i hope uh, hope you did too and yeah. uh and break and review us don't listen to pod save america or the x files X Files, yeah. And keep keep tuning in to keep listening and yeah. thanks so much. We'll we'll see you again next week. Yeah. And buy your merch. Get your merch. Right, get your t shirts, your mugs. Also subscribe on YouTube so you get a ding every time you uh you know, a ding dong, whatever, a bell goes off every time we have a new video. You gotta right. subscribe. You exactly. just gotta do it. If you yeah. don't just I don't even wanna talk to you. Right. Yes. Katie doesn't want to even want to talk to you. Yeah. So uh avoid that. Do the right thing and uh, we'll see you again next week. Yeah. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.